The Dr. Taz Show. The podcast, Dr. Taz. Superwoman Wellness. Here's Dr. Taz. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Superwoman Wellness, where you know I'm determined to bring you back to your superpowered self. Joining me today is not a rock band, but Cyrus and Robbie, who are the masters of diabetes management. In fact, they started a program called Mastering Diabetes. It is a coaching program that teaches people how to reverse insulin resistance using a low-fat, plant-based, whole food nutrition program. Cyrus has been living with type 1 diabetes since 2002. He has an undergraduate degree from Stanford and a PhD. I hate it when people brag. We're at a PhD in nutritional oh, chemistry. <laughs> Berkeley, bringing you only the best and the brightest here. Robbie was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in 2000 and has been living a plant-based lifestyle since 2006 and also worked at Forks Over Knives for over six years. Their book is Mastering Diabetes. Welcome to the show, both of you. Thank you for taking time out today to join me, all jokes aside. And we'll start with you, Cyrus. What has your journey with type 1 diabetes been like and how has your work kind of influenced what you found in this program, Mastering Diabetes? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having us here on this podcast. We're uh, very excited to be here. Um, I was diagnosed with type one diabetes when I was 22 years old. So this is back in the year 2002. And uh, I was just kind of a happy go lucky kid. I was graduated from college. I was trying to move on with my life. And, uh, you know, I got diagnosed with actually three autoimmune conditions at the same time. Mm. The first one was Hashimoto's hypothyroidism. Then I got alopecia universalis, which is why I have no hair, no eyebrows, no eyelashes, nothing. And then I got diagnosed with type one diabetes. So basically three autoimmune conditions within a wow. six month period. And I was nervous. I didn't know, you know, what was wrong with my health. And so, um, I ended up talking with my doctors who basically told me to eat a low carbohydrate diet mm -hmm. and a low carbohydrate diet, you know, that's kind of the one size fits all prescription for all forms of diabetes. And that's, you know, a diet that contains a lot of meat, cheese, fish, eggs, olive oil, you name it, and trying to minimize your intake of fruits and vegetables and potatoes, you know, starchy vegetables. So I did that for the first year thinking that it was supposed to control my blood glucose and control my insulin use. But my glucose went the opposite direction. It went way up. My insulin use went way up. And quite honestly, I just felt terrible. Mm -hmm. Low energy, my joints hurt, my muscles hurt. I got anxious. I just got depressed. It was just a nightmare. So I ended up finding just randomly as I was learning about in nutrition, um, the power of a plant-based diet. So I said, great, I have nothing to lose. Let me try it out. So I started eating a plant-based diet and in one week, wow. my insulin use fell by 40%, oh which my is gosh. very atypical for somebody living with type 1 diabetes. But here's the kicker. My insulin use went down as my carbohydrate intake went way up. And my, my carbohydrate intake went upwards of 600 grams per day. So here I am eating boatloads of carbohydrate energy. And that, you know, according to the traditional diabetes rhetoric, that's supposed to make your blood glucose go high. Right. My book was going down. My insulin use was going down. I felt better. And I was like, wait, what, what the heck is happening here? This is awesome. Yeah. But I'm very confused. So I went back to school. I went and got a PhD in nutritional biochemistry so I could learn the science of what was happening inside of me mm -hmm. and the science of what was happening inside of, you know, the human body to see if my story could be applicable to other people. And in the process, you didn't, you didn't first be like, let me talk to other experts. It was no, let me go back to school and get a PhD first. Yeah. Because <laughs> there was something that was, like, I only trust myself. <laughs> well, it was, it was electrifying because I mean, here's what I learned when I started talking with the, the experts that I knew at that time, 
and I asked them questions about nutrition, low fat, high fat, low carb, whatnot. I just got a bunch of question marks. People were like, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It sounds good to me. Every Here's the thing. Everyone's different. You know, you mm-hmm. hear this thing over and over. And I just was like, oh my God, I'm so tired of that response. I just don't, I don't buy it. Right. Right. So hence the need to have to go back to school so that I could educate myself. Anyway, got a PhD, nutritional biochemistry, learned the science, uncovered there at UC Berkeley that there is over a hundred years of research that not only clearly describes what happened inside of me, but that describes how to create diabetes and how to reverse diabetes using your diet. This information has been known since the 1920s. It's just that it's been sort of buried in the scientific literature and the public doesn't pay attention to it. So I was like, this is interesting because the scientific world knows how to do it. The public doesn't know how to do it. Medical professionals don't know how to do it. So then Robbie and I, when we ended up meeting each other along the way in 2010, we basically put our heads together and said, you know what? We're the same person. You live in Southern California. I live in Northern California. We both have very similar stories. Let's do this together. Let's try and educate people living with all forms of diabetes, how to reverse insulin resistance and how to reverse the underlying cause of high blood glucose. And that's what we've been doing for the past four to five years. And we've helped, you know, at this point, it's, it's hard to count, but somewhere between 10,000 and 50,000 people. Amazing. And it's been a really, really, really fun journey so far. That's amazing. Robbie, tell me a little bit, like, where do you fit into the story? And I think you have type one diabetes as well. And, you know, I've been troubled in practice. First of all, autoimmune diseases, Cyrus, as you probably know, are on the rise. Oh, yeah. And it is odd, you know, to get back to back to back diagnoses within six months. But, you know, my experience in practice has been like, you have one, you'll have two, you'll have three, if you don't get to the root of what's going on with you, because the immune system's going nuts, essentially, and, and all the prescriptions and all the band-aids we put on there are not, are not the answer. So Robbie, I'm curious, is your story similar? Did your diagnosis evolve in, in the same way? So, sort of uh, uh, help us with how you fit into this puzzle. Yeah, my story is similar in the sense of, you know, when you're diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, you, you have this common symptoms. So I basically self-diagnosed myself. I was 12, just about to turn 13, and I was thirsty all the time. I was going to the bathroom all the time. I said, Mom, I think I have type 1 diabetes just like Steve. So my older brother was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes nine years prior to me. And my mom said, no, no, don't be silly. You don't have diabetes. I said, okay. And then a couple of days later, she traveled to Florida. We were living in Minnesota at the time. She called the check-in and she said, hey, how are things going? I said, mom, I couldn't sleep last night. I was cramping. She said, okay, go upstairs. Use your brother's blood glucose meter and test yourself. And I was well over 400. You're supposed to be somewhere between 80 and 130. My brother said right then and there, yep, you have type 1 diabetes, pack your bag, you're going to be in the hospital for a few nights. So that was the beginning of my journey with type 1. And I just remember my dad telling me in the hospital, it's okay, it's just an inconvenience. You can still do whatever you want in life. And I grew up following the standard American diet. My parents wanted to make sure we had the best healthcare possible. So they took me to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. I had an endocrinologist there. I had a nutritionist. I had a psychologist, a whole team. And nobody ever talked to me about insulin resistance. Nobody ever talked to me about using food as medicine to prevent the complications associated with diabetes. So I just kept on going with my normal life, developed standard American diet symptoms. I had cystic acne, which was really frustrating. I ended up trying all the treatments, the creams, the pills, the laser treatments, everything. 
Nothing worked. I ended up taking Accutane, one of the most serious drugs you can take for acne. And I had plantar fasciitis, which was frustrating as a competitive tennis player. I wore these big blue boots at night for passive stretching. I had warts on my feet. I would get mm. sick every year with allergies, even though I took my Nasonex and my Claritin D. So I was just suffering from standard American symptoms. And eventually I started to learn about lifestyle changes through my dad, through some supplements he was selling. And while I was in high school, I was at Barnes and Noble looking for spark notes as a high school student does. Mm -hmm. And I discovered a book called Kevin Trudeau's Natural Cures They Don't Want You to Know About. And people listening may, might remember this show and this character. He's a very handsome guy. The book is purple. He was on infomercials, sold millions of copies, then he eventually went to jail. So I'm not recommending this book or this guy, but it planted a seed in my mind that, you know what, maybe it's possible to reverse type one diabetes. So that was my mission. That's how I got started in this. Uh, now it's like over 15 years since I started doing that. And I can't report that I figured out how to reverse type one diabetes, but certainly can report that we have figured out how to, you know, uncover the truth about reversing insulin resistance and, you know, really taking charge of the complications that are associated with diabetes. And I had a huge turnaround. So when I transitioned from a, I tried many different diets. I tried a Weston A. Price Foundation diet. I tried a Gabriel Cousins phase one diet, which at the time there wasn't a plant-based ketogenic world, but that was a plant-based ketogenic diet. So I did that. And when I transitioned from that to this low-fat plant-based whole food diet that we teach now, my insulin sensitivity improved by 900%. Not, wow. not a miscalculation. Um, it's real. And it's incredible. So just like Cyrus, the personal experience was mind-blowing. And I'm like, this is crazy. I was a student at the University of Florida. So I went back and started looking at research that I had access to being a student. And I found out, just like Cyrus, this stuff was talked about in the 1920s. We have known how to reverse insulin resistance. It is not being shared. It's not what's being taught when you get diagnosed with diabetes of any form. And that just set me on a path to continue to learn more and try and get this information out to as many people as possible. And I worked at Forks Over Knives for six years, um, had a lot of fun there. And then we started Mastering Diabetes in 2017. And now I'm happy to report my, my results following this approach for the past 13 years um, are, are something to be really proud of. So my, my A1C is 5.3%. My time in range is 92% with uh, less than 3% low. So I don't have a great A1C because I'm going low all the time. I have great A1C because my blood glucose management is really solid. And my skin is cleared up. Plantar fasciitis went away. I don't take any allergy medication. And I use a physiologically normal amount of insulin, about 27 units of insulin per day total to eat roughly 700 grams of total carbohydrate. Amazing. And I think it's important for everybody out there listening you might be thinking, oh, I don't have diabetes. I don't need to pay attention to this. But insulin resistance and insulin sensitivity are epidemics. I see them over and over again in all kinds of shapes, forms, and sizes. They show up as the obesity crisis. They show up as androgens in so many different women. They show up in so many ways and they trigger inflammation, which drives all the autoimmunity that we are talking about every single day. So for both of you guys, I would say you're not just talking about mastering diabetes. You're really talking about mastering a public health epidemic that nobody is really paying enough attention to and it's super frustrating. So let's get into the nitty gritty of what you guys have found, what you are both saying essentially has not been discussed and has not really 
come to the forefront of public knowledge when it comes to insulin resistance, blood sugar control, how to get that A1C in the right place, how to keep your blood sugar well managed. What is it that people do not know? Okay, so there's, there's a big elephant in the room here, or I guess it, the term is skeleton in the closet, not really sure. There's a big animal somewhere. And, uh, <laughs> or the remains of one. <laughs> or the remains of one, not really sure. So. Okay. Um, and that is um, the, the term insulin resistance. So we've been sort of talking and alluding to the fact that insulin resistance is important in the world of diabetes. And it actually is the underlying cause of high blood glucose in pre-diabetes, in type 2 diabetes, and in gestational diabetes. In other words, you cannot develop pre-diabetes type 2 or gestational without first being insulin resistant. It's a prerequisite. Okay. In addition to that, insulin resistance is also present in the overwhelming majority of people living with type 1 and type 1.5 diabetes, both of which yes. are autoimmune conditions. But the world of diabetes does not understand how this is possible and does not associate insulin resistance with autoimmunity, with autoimmune diabetes, I will say. They only associate it with the lifestyle versions of diabetes, again, pre-diabetes type two and gestational. So that's the major point number one. Now, when it comes to insulin resistance, the rhetoric in the world of diabetes, if you go onto, uh, you know, anywhere on the blogosphere, you go onto WebMD, you go onto Instagram and you try and find out what is insulin resistance. Most people will tell you that insulin resistance is caused by insulin. They'll say, the over-secretion of insulin in your pancreas is what's causing insulin resistance. And the reason why your pancreas is over-secreting insulin in the first place is because you're eating too many carbs. Right. Right? It's all about carbs. The whole conversation is don't mm -hmm. eat carbs. Carbs are bad for you. Carbs will make you fat. Carbs will make you more diabetic. Carbs will increase your, your blood cholesterol level. So carbs are bad for you. Don't eat carbs, right? And that's what people, they say, oh, okay, I understand. Carbohydrates causes insulin secretion. Too much insulin causes insulin resistance. Therefore, I shouldn't eat carbs. Sounds pretty good. So what they do is they go on to a low-carbohydrate diet, and that's either an Atkins diet or a paleo diet or a ketogenic diet. And as a result right. of doing that, guess what happens? They lose weight. Their cholesterol drops. Their A1C goes down. Their fasting insulin goes down. Their fasting blood glucose goes down. And they go, hey, I found the answer. It's all about a low-carbohydrate diet. Okay? Now, what is important to understand is that the reason that people who eat a low carbohydrate diet are getting such dramatic benefits is mainly due to the fact that they're losing weight. Okay? It's not actually fixing insulin resistance as the root cause of the physiological problem. What it's doing is people are playing the carbohydrate avoidance game. And when you play the carbohydrate avoidance game, you can stabilize your blood glucose very easily. You can lose weight very easily and you can it, it looks on a piece of paper and it feels like you're solving diabetes when in reality, you're not solving diabetes. You're just, you're just improving many aspects of your health that have a secondary effect on making your blood glucose and insulin levels better. Okay. So if we really go backwards and say, well, what is insulin resistance? And if, if, if it's not about carbohydrates and it's not about excess insulin, then what is it? And the answer is that insulin resistance is caused by the excess accumulation of dietary fat inside of your muscles and liver. Okay. And this is like a kind of a mind blowing point. Cause a lot of people are like, wait, what? I thought insulin resistance had to do with carbs. And now you're telling me it has to do with fat. That doesn't make any sense. 
But if you go back into the research and you look at you know, what researchers know and what they have experimented with over the past 100 years, what you'll find is that both in experimental animals like mice and rats, as well as in humans and in monkeys, when you are trying to induce insulin resistance in any of these research-based models, you don't feed animals carbohydrates. You don't feed them sugar. You literally feed them a high-fat diet. That, is, that was my first clue back in graduate school that diabetes and insulin resistance isn't necessarily only caused or it isn't necessarily caused by carbohydrates, but actually has a much stronger connection to the quantity of fat that you eat. So when you eat fat in food, fat comes in the form of triglyceride. And that triglyceride is present inside of meat, chicken, fish, uh, olive oil, coconut oil, dairy products, eggs, you name it. It's also found in plant-based foods like nuts and seeds and avocados mm. and olives and coconuts. So triglyceride in food goes in your mouth. It travels down your esophagus. It gets inside of your stomach and then your small intestine. Inside of your small intestine, there's a whole collection of enzymes that are secreted by both your liver and your pancreas. And they're put inside of your small intestine. And their job is to sort of rip apart this triglyceride molecule. So the triglyceride molecule is literally glycerol with three fatty acids attached to it. So these digestive enzymes rip apart the glycerol from the three fatty acids. And then these three fatty acids are then absorbed through the walls of your small intestine. They get into your lymph system. They get put inside of these particles called chylomicrons. These chylomicrons circulate through your blood and they're there to deliver fatty acids to tissues all throughout your body. So that's a good thing. Their purpose is to deliver fatty acids to your adipose tissue, to your liver, to your muscle, to your thyroid gland, to your, your, uh, your reproductive organs, you name it. But what ends up happening over the course of time as you consume a high-fat diet is that the delivery of fatty acids to your muscle and liver, namely, becomes too high. Okay? So yes, fatty acids go into your adipose tissue where they're supposed to be. And that's great because your adipose tissue is designed to uptake lots of fat and keep it for a long period of time. But your muscles and liver are only designed to store small amounts of fat, not large amounts. So when you're eating a, you know, a low carb or a high fat meal for breakfast and then for lunch and then for dinner, and then you do it again tomorrow and the next day and the next day, before you know it, the amount of fatty acids that are stored inside your liver and muscle begin to accumulate and they begin to over accumulate. As soon as they over accumulate, both your liver and muscle say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We got to block this stuff from coming in. So the way that they block that stuff from coming in is not by directly blocking the fatty acids because they don't have that capacity. What they do instead is they block insulin from working. And when they block insulin, they basically say it's a general signal that, that, that decreases the rate at which energy gets inside of tissues. So they effectively are doing a self-protective mechanism by saying, hey, we're not going to pay attention to insulin anymore. And thus creates this thing called insulin resistance or insulin rejection, right? So the next time you go eat something as simple as one banana or one mango or a, a bowl of quinoa, yep. right? Even carbohydrates that come from whole sources, or you consume refined carbohydrates like cookies, crackers, chips, pasta, sodas, like a small amount of any carbohydrate rich food will end up the glucose from those carbohydrate molecules will get inside of your blood. Insulin will come knock on the door of your liver, knock on the door of your muscle, say, hey, there's glucose. Do you want to take up that glucose? And your liver and muscle will respond by saying, sorry, I'm not paying attention to you right now, insulin. Remember, I'm doing insulin resistance. That's the game I'm playing right now. I'm not paying attention to you. And as a result of that, your blood glu your, your, the level of glucose begins to accumulate in your blood. Insulin and glucose both get trapped in your blood. So you check your blood glucose two hours later, 
you look at your blood glucose meter and you go, that's weird. I had one banana and my blood glucose is at 220. I told you it's the carbohydrate that's the problem. Carbohydrates are the problem. Fruits are the problem. Potatoes are the problem. And so it reinforces this idea that carbohydrates are bad for you. They're bad for you. They're bad for you. But in reality, it's not the carbohydrates fault. It's the thing that came before. It's everything that you ate that led up to the carbohydrate rich food that caused a metabolic traffic jam called insulin resistance. And in that state, when you try and consume anything carbohydrate rich, it doesn't work. So what we do is we do the exact opposite. We say, okay, we're not going to play the carbohydrate avoidance game because carbohydrate rich foods are not the problem. They never were and they never will be, especially if they come from whole foods. We're going to go target insulin resistance and, and reverse it and turn it into insulin sensitivity. The way you do that is by undoing the thing that caused insulin resistance, right? Reducing your fat intake, not eliminating it, but reducing your total fat intake, especially saturated fat down to about 10 to 15% of total calories. And when you do that, then insulin receptors and the insulin signaling pathway in your liver and your muscle begin to wake up. And as soon as that happens, you can start eating carbohydrate rich foods and you can metabolize them easily. And as a result of doing that, what you're doing is you're targeting insulin resistance and you're, you're telling insulin resistance to go away. And you're actually literally reversing it inside of your body, which has a secondary effect of allowing you to eat carbohydrate. But in addition to that, it also drops your overall chronic disease risk. And the last thing I'll say here is that you know, insulin resistance is a problem for diabetes. There's no question about it. But what you pointed out earlier is that insulin resistance is also connected to many other diseases. Right? Oh, yes. It's connected to heart disease, kidney disease, uh, you know, chronic kidney disease, Alzheimer's disease, fatty liver disease, peripheral neuropathy, you name it. So when you reverse insulin resistance, you can drop your overall chronic disease risk. And by doing that, you can live many years into the future in the healthiest state possible. So let's poke some holes in this. So Robbie, um, we've got people listening who may have a child like you, you know, in your younger state that has just developed type one diabetes, that child does not have a lot of fat on them, that adult may not have a lot of fat on them. There's a lot of type one and a half that I'm seeing as well where these folks are thin, but they somehow get some sort of hybrid version of type one and type two, we should probably talk about that in a second as well. But they swear that, first of all, how does this theory work when there's no stored fat, technically, their body fat is low, they're athletes, all of, all of this other stuff. And then secondly, how uh, when they have tried diets like keto or some of these other diets that are out there, they've been able to reduce their insulin load permanently and do really well. So the idea that they need to reduce their fat intake when a keto diet may have worked for them or to reduce their protein intake when a paleo diet may have worked for them, I know people are struggling with. So maybe help us with, with that. Why would this make sense for that thin child, that athlete, you know, that person that may not have a lot of visceral fat already, and then they develop type one diabetes. Okay, this is a really important conversation overall, in the sense that number one, we want to like acknowledge and respect the ketogenic low carb header community um, in general, and especially for those who are living with type one diabetes. And you're like, okay, wait a minute, I have to like dose my insulin, I got to count on a meeting, or I have to like do this whole new lifestyle. And there is absolutely truth behind this idea of like, look, if I eliminate carbohydrates, eat as little as possible, you know, you do like a Dr. Bernstein style approach, maybe 30 grams net max per day, then your overall insulin dose that's necessary is likely going to drop. 
your bug glucose variability is going to decrease. Therefore, it's going to be easier to see this, these flat lines that the type 1 community wants to see on their CGMs. Like, I, Cyrus and I both get that. We acknowledge it. We recognize it. It's real. I personally experienced it while doing a plant-based keto diet. I experience it to this day when I do a 24-hour basal test, like we recommend in the Master Diabetes Program, where you get to see, okay, wait a minute, how's my basal? You're like, okay, I'm not injecting any insulin all day, so my curve is very easy flat all day long because I'm not eating carbohydrates. Like, we get it. So I want to acknowledge that, but then say our concern with that approach, again, is the long-term consequences. Just focusing on blood glucose control is missing the bigger picture. We're not having a conversation about insulin sensitivity, about glucose tolerance. Because when you do that, you're eating yourself into a state of glucose intolerance. Like Sarah said, you have a banana, your blood glucose goes to 230. You eat some quinoa, your blood glucose goes to 250. So that's our concern. And then so the recommendation is, look, people are concerned. Okay, wait a minute. If I start eating these meals you're recommending, like, you know, you have a lunch meal for 100 grams of carbohydrate, 125 grams of carbohydrate, that's, that's more than I've eaten in an entire week. Like, this is going to, this is very scary. So we teach people how to make a transition in an intelligent way where they actually don't experience these super high blood glucose readings because our program is whole foods. Okay, so when you're eating whole foods in a low-fat environment, that means you're including the fiber, the water, vitamins, min my, minerals, antioxidants, phytochemicals. And this package actually does result in very steady, predictable blood glucose readings. So your blood glucose is supposed to elevate when you eat and come back down. That's normal, natural human physiology. And people are shocked at how little insulin they do require when eating these higher carbohydrate meals and how consistent and predictable the blood glucose curve can be. So if you know, somebody's young and they just got diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and it's time to gain weight, you can absolutely do that while following the master diabetes method. You're going to be fine with using insulin, which is going to, because they're in a deficiency currently, and that's going to help them put, get some, uh, some glucose into their cells. Um, they're also going to start eating more food. And they can easily use a nutrition software like Chronometer and be reassured that they are getting all the essential fatty acids that they need. And so like Sarah said, this is not a zero fat diet. You're going to be eating fats in all the whole foods you consume. So when you have bananas, quinoa, peaches, pears, mangoes, beans, all whole foods include not just fat, but essential fatty acids. And when you eat enough, you get all the fat you need for a growing child. You can tweak it whichever way you want. So there are a lot of adjustments that can be made for different stages of life within the mastering diabetes method. And we encourage people to be very objective about that, work with a physician and make sure all the requirements are met. But there's no question that um, somebody who's type one underweight wants to gain weight and gain insulin sensitivity, you can absolutely do that simultaneously. So this is fascinating to me because again, I see so much of this in practice and we get so many questions from patients about what the best diet is and should they eat fruit and should they eat carbs and all of this other stuff. In your Mastering Diabetes program, it sounds like a central theme is very much eating whole foods, eating real food, you know, food devoid of preservatives and additives and sugars and all this other stuff. Would you guys go as far to say in your experience, both individually and with the people that you've worked with, that the trigger 
for type 1 diabetes or other autoimmune diseases is somehow wrapped into the quality of food maybe that you were exposed to or that others have been exposed to our food processing or food manufacturing, you know, how much of that plays into this? Because the important part of this is that you can go on a keto diet, right? Or a paleo diet or any of the other diets out there and master your macros, so to speak, right? Like I got my fat grams here and my protein grams there and all this other stuff. But if it is again, unhealthy foods, you know, like, processed foods, soy food, you know, all that other stuff that's out there. I don't want to name names, but if it's unhealthy foods, I still think you're not doing the gut a service, the liver a service, and you're not really establishing long-term health, which is kind of more of what I'm interested in. So I'm curious as to where the whole foods part of this program is really the take-home message, not just the, the plant-based version and not just the, low, the carbohydrate component of it. Yeah, there's no question. Uh, you know, in the world of type one diabetes, uh, the you know over the past ten years, there's been a 23 percent increase in the in the proportion of the population that is diagnosed with autoimmune type one diabetes. That has never before happened in the history of of humankind. You know, the the proportion of people living with type one diabetes has been relatively constant for the past hundred years, but then all of a sudden over the past ten years, now we're seeing a you know 25 percent increase. Uh, and and a lot of researchers are throwing their hands up in the air saying, we don't know what it is. But in addition to that, there's a number of other autoimmune diseases, right? Everything from Hashimoto's hypothyroidism to multiple sclerosis to celiac disease to uh, Crohn's. Crohn's disease yeah. and you name it. All of them are on the rise, right? So this is not coincidence. Let's put it that way. There is a collection of factors that come from environmental sources and from dietary sources that are absolutely responsible for increasing your risk for the development of many autoimmune conditions, type 1 diabetes being one of them, type 1.5 diabetes being another one of them as well, right? So um, if you were to ask me, Cyrus, you know, what is contributing to the increase? Well, there's actually some research that demonstrates that there's particular viruses in the atmosphere that you can actually contract that you will be asymptomatic for. And these viruses can actually trigger um, a process called molecular mimicry, which then you know, causes an autoimmune reaction. Um, there's another bacteria known as MAP, Mycobacterium avium paratuberculosis. Don't worry, it's not going to be on the test. But MAP is uh, a bacteria that's found in uh, cows that are uh, raised in these industrial farms. Some of them get end up with this MAP bacteria. They develop a condition called Yohn's disease, and that can be that causes muscle wasting, and they end up dying. But when this MAP bacteria is inside of these animals, it can get inside of their, it gets inside of their fecal material. It gets in the soil. Other animals end up picking it up on their hooves. When it comes, when those animals come to slaughter, uh, the, the MAP bacteria gets on the, on the boots and the gloves of the workers, no matter how sanitary they try and make it. And then sometimes that MAP bacteria can get packed into meat and dairy products. And some of it can actually escape pasteurization, like two to 3% of it escapes pasteurization, which means that when you go to the grocery store and you're buying pasteurized milk, there is a two to 3% chance that there is live MAP bacteria inside of that milk. And when you consume that, that can certainly increase your risk for type one. One of the most fascinating um, statistics I read in the research is that 100%, 100% of people with type one diabetes that have been tested for MAP bacteria, all of them test positive. Okay. It's not wow. just like 20%, 40%, 50%. This is a black and white scenario, which is very rare in the world of biology, right? 
Does that mean mm -hmm. MAP causes type 1 diabetes? No, it doesn't. But it means that it's something that we should certainly pay attention to. There's no question about it, right? right. So point being, yes, we're not telling people to just lower their fat content and go eat a bunch of, you know, plant-based beyond meat burgers or impossible burgers. No, that's not the point. Okay. Right. You said it. I was, I was trying not to say it. No, that's right. That's it. right. And, and, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm not go. trying to like, right. I'm not trying to name names here, but like, you know, those are transition yeah. foods that can certainly get you towards a more plant-based diet. It's totally fine. But in the long term, what we're talking about is eating whole foods, fruits, vegetables, starchy vegetables, legumes, and whole grains. If you can make that the base of your diet, and then you can add in herbs and spices and mushrooms and green leafy vegetables, you have yourself a ticket for success. You have yourself not only the most powerful diabetes reversal program ever developed, you also have a cancer reduction and or uh, cancer reversal prevention at the same time. You have a heart disease reversal program at the same time, right? You have an Alzheimer's disease prevention program at the same time, right? Because eating a whole food diet is the single most powerful form of nutrition that the scientific world has ever seen before. And we just happen to talk and communicate about diabetes because we both live it and we understand it very well. Right. But eating this way is an anti-cancer, anti-heart disease, anti-chronic you know, disease methodology. And it really, it's, it's an unbelievably powerful technique. Well, we can trace every, I mean, I don't want to say every, but I can trace the majority, 90% of what I deal with, whether it's pediatric adult or even our elders, we can trace 90% of what they deal with back to insulin resistance. So wow. from behavior to learning to PCOS, infertility, you know, uh, I mean, I can keep going breast cancer. I mean, we can keep going on and on uh, with how much of a connection this particular issue has. I feel like I can talk to you guys all day about this stuff and I don't want to take up your time <laughs> forever. Real quickly, one of you tell me just, I want to educate everybody. Tell, tell us about in two seconds about type one and a half diabetes, type 1.5 diabetes, because that's on the rise as well. And then if one of you will take my question about mastering diabetes, how do we do it? Where do we find it? What's next? We're curious, uh, help us with all perfect. of that. All right, I'll do type 1.5 and then Robbie can do the second one. Okay, okay type 1.5 diabetes in a nutshell. It's an autoimmune condition as is type one diabetes. The difference between the two of them is that type 1.5 is uh, it's an autoimmune condition that generally sets in after the age of 30. So you have to be sort of 30 years old-ish or older in order to develop type 1.5. And the, thing, the second thing that differentiates it is that it is a weaker autoimmune condition than type 1 diabetes. In other words, when you develop type 1 diabetes, generally speaking, uh, people with type 1 diabetes express multiple antibodies to the beta cells in their pancreas. So there's proteins on the cell surface of your pancreas. And when your immune system manufactures antibodies against those proteins, because it's been sort of tricked into believing that those are dangerous proteins, then you can end up sacrificing or getting rid of all the beta cells inside of your pancreas, right? Type one diabetes, because there's multiple antibodies ends up resulting in a full insulin dependence, usually within 12 to 18 months of diagnosis. Okay. And that's a relatively quick progression. Type 1.5 mm -hmm. diabetes, uh, usually manifests itself as having only one antibody, okay? This is not a hard and fast rule, but in general, usually one antibody. And as a result of that, instead of progressing to full insulin dependence over the course of 12 to 18 months, sometimes it takes three years. Sometimes it takes five years. Sometimes it never even happens. But the idea here is that there's a partial uh, 
compromise of the beta cells in your pancreas. And as a result of that, you end up having to use insulin, exogenous insulin to control your blood glucose. But it's the amount of insulin that a person with type 1.5 diabetes generally requires is much smaller than the amount of insulin that a person with type 1 diabetes requires. So one of the, 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 the two sort of definitive tests that you can take that will tell you if you are living with type 1.5 diabetes are, number one, it's called a C-peptide test. Go get your C-peptide tested. And a C-peptide is basically a measurement of how much insulin your, your pancreas is capable of secreting, okay? If you're low, that's an indicator that you have compromised beta cell mass. If you're medium, that's an indicator that you might have some amount of beta cell damage. If you're high, that generally means that you don't really have any uh, you know, compromised beta cell population. The second test is called a diabetes antibody panel. And that's a collection of mm -hmm. five different antibodies that you can get tested to determine if you're positive for any one of those five. Okay? If you are positive for even one of those five, that is definitive that you have an autoimmune version of diabetes. And then if you do that in combination with your C-peptide level, you can put the two pieces of information together to try and find out if you're living with type 1 or type 1.5. Super helpful. About C-peptide, should it be done fasting or can it be done at any time of the so day? So you can do both a fasting and a stimulated C-peptide. Uh, generally, the fasting is what we recommend because it's a, uh, it's a very helpful test in giving you information about your sort of baseline C-peptide production that's independent of food. If there's some question about that, you can do a stimulated fed C-peptide test as well. Um, but just the baseline, you know, fasted C-peptide test is plenty of information to get you started in understanding how much beta cell reserve you actually have. Perfect. Good stuff. And then if we want to jump into mastering diabetes and get more information and really get our heads around this even further, I feel like there's still so much more to talk about. What is the best way to do that, Robbie? I think the best place to start is to pick up the book. All right. Yes. It was great to see Sarah's talking about type 1.5 there because this book is all about addressing all forms of diabetes. The subtitle is The Revolutionary Method to Reverse Insulin Resistance Permanently in Type 1, Type 1.5, Type 2, Prediabetes, and Gestational Diabetes. So you can get this book anywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. We read our own audiobook, which you can get on Audible or Google Play, which was really fun. There's some extra bonus material in the audiobook. And you can also get it on Kindle and Nook, so those ebook versions. And if people live outside the U.S. and want to get the book sent, you can go to Book Depository and just Google Book Depository, Mastering Diabetes, and you can get the book shipped to you internationally for free, which is pretty crazy. I don't know how they stay in business, but they'll do it. <laughs> and you can also find us on our website, masteringdiabetes.org. We have a podcast. Just type in Mastering Diabetes to any podcast platform and you'll find us. We're on Instagram. We're on YouTube. We're on Facebook. So wherever you want to connect, we're ready to connect with you and, and help. Wonderful. Well, thank you both for taking some time out today to join me. We really appreciate it. And I know for everybody listening today, they can use this information. They can apply it to themselves, to somebody in their family, a loved one. This is an epidemic. So I know this is helpful and useful information. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And for everybody else, thank you for watching this episode of Superwoman Wellness. Remember to rate and review it and share it with your friends. I will see you guys next time.